wonderful. Thank you so much, Brighton. All right, let's take our Bibles and turn tonight to the book of Genesis, chapter number 46. Go to Genesis, chapter number 46, and we'll read uh, verse number 1 down through verse number 7. Hey, relax. It's going to be okay. You're going to be fine. I see some of you. This is not what we're supposed to do. Lamar, you forgot to sing songs. I'm very aware of where we're at. It's intentional, okay? In Genesis chapter number 46, verse number one, anytime you do anything different in a Baptist church, people are confused, and so we're going to have some fun tonight. Genesis chapter 46, verse number one, if you'd read with me, it says, and Israel took his journey with all Excuse me, and Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifice unto the God of his father Isaac. And God spake unto Israel in the, vision, uh, in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here am I. And he said, I am God, the God of thy father. Fear not to go down into Egypt, for I will there make of thee a great nation. I will go down with thee into Egypt, and I will uh, also surely bring thee up again. And Joseph shall put his hand upon thine eyes. And Jacob rose up from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried Jacob their father, and their little ones, and their wives, and the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. And they took their cattle and their goods, which they had gotten in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his seed with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all his seed brought he with him into Egypt. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and your many blessings. And already what I'm going to talk about tonight has been mentioned so eloquently by Brother Chip this morning. And I think that you did that intentionally to show us the truth that you'd have for us to learn from in your word tonight. Lord, I pray that you'd be with me as I preach, that you'd fill me with your power, empty me of self, and I'd be honed in and focused on what you've already shown me even this week. And I pray that uh, although this is different, I pray that people would listen, they'd hear the word preached tonight, and they wouldn't just hear it, Lord, but there'd be an opportunity for them to apply what they've heard tonight. Lord, I pray that we would all do that, including me. Lord, I pray that you'd speak with us and speak to us tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for reading. <clears throat> I am a big, avid A.W. Tozier fan. Who knows who A.W. Tozier is? Good, several of you. A.W. Tozier is one of my favorite preachers. I like to read his writings as well as uh, read his uh, different quotes and so forth. He's known for his quotes. As a matter of fact, I'm such an avid A.W. Tozier fan that uh, me and him have the same Bible. And, and we get confused with each other all the time because his name is on my Bible. And pe- people think I'm A.W. Tozier. I say, no, I'm not able to. I'm, I'm Lamar. No, I'm just kidding. But I love, I love A.W. Tozier. I've got his Bible, and again, I like to read his quotes. And he has a lot to say about a bunch of different things, but I would say that probably the one thing that he specializes in is writing in regards to a biblical perspective of worship. Uh, and he's written several books about worship, and one of his most famous uh, books that he has written, I, I got the opportunity to read it while I was in college, is a book called Whatever Happened to Worship. <clears throat> Whatever Happened to Worship. And uh, there's, this is a quote that he, he said, Uh, In his book, Whatever Happened to Worship, whenever the church has come out of her lethargy, rising from her sleep and into the tides of revival and spiritual renewal, true worship has always been behind it. I'm going to read it again. Whenever the church has come out of her lethargy, the sluggish and apathetic state, whenever the church has come out of her lethargy, rising from her sleep and into the tides of revival and spiritual renewal, true worship has always been behind it. 
How many of you want to see revival in Wooden Valley Baptist Church? You'd love to see revival. That's the answer right there. The key to revival comes in the way that we, as Brother Chip preached this morning, the way that we view God and the way that we worship Him in spirit and in truth. Worship is the key to revival. Let's talk about that word worship for just a minute. Uh, No doubt, most of us, when worship comes to mind, we think of a number of different things. And so while I was studying for this, I had opportunity to ask some of my friends. Some of them were independent Baptists. Some of them were not independent Baptists. I asked them what worship meant to them. And to my surprise, I actually didn't hear a single explanation of worship that I would adamantly disagree with. Um, and, and some of them were a little bit more surface level, some of them were more deep, and so I wrote a few of them down, and so here's one, worship is the outpouring of one's soul before an almighty and righteous God, remembering who he is, what he's done, and what he'll do. Who would agree with that? <clears throat> Absolutely. Here's another one, worship is the acknowledgement of who God is. <clears throat> worship is the exaltation of the person, power, and attributes of God. I would agree with most of those statements. Uh, what about you? I, I want some answers. You're going to be called on tonight. We're going to treat it more like a Sunday school. And so if no one answers, I'll call people out. But how many of you would like to give a brief, just a few words or less, explanation of what worship is to you, what you believe biblical worship is? Raise your hand. Somebody, quickly. I'm going to start calling people out. We just heard, I don't know, a message on it this morning. Uh, so somebody, maybe Brother Chip could re-preach his message for us. Okay, Brother Olzak, go for it. Pouring out our appreciation and admiration for the Lord God Almighty. That's worship. Somebody else. Somebody else. Let's just do two or three more. Two or three more. I love awkwardness, so I'll just wait. Two or three more. Two or three more. What is worship? You're afraid that you're going to give the wrong answer. You could even rephrase what I just said in some of the quotes. Somebody. All right. I was hoping that you would would raise your hand. Go ahead. Attributing worth. To God. Us attributing worth to God. Can we get one more? Maybe a young person. Maybe a young person, a teenager that knows what worship is. Someone going to be bold enough? All right, let's go, Liam. That's a, good, that's a good explanation. Worship is praising God for what he's done. That was very much like some of the quotes that we heard just a moment ago. And so I, I, I asked that question Because I know that this church understands what worship is. I'm going to take that for granted tonight when I preach. I understand that this church knows what worship is. Uh, Let me ask this question. How many of you have been driving in this area? When I say this area, I mean on the east side, Bothell, Kenmore, Woodenville, for a number of years you've been driving over in this area. Okay, great. How many of you have ever driven down Highway 9? Okay, Highway 9. How many of you understand that between Cathcart, do you know where Cathcart is? Everybody know where Cathcart is? Just two or three miles down where the lanes split from one to two. If you're coming this way, if you're going that way, it splits into two. And from Cathcart to uh, 228th Street right here, you don't speed between Cathcart and 228th. And if you don't know that, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, don't do that. Don't speed when you get to Cathcart in 228. The reason you don't speed is because it's very easy to neglect the road signs on the side of the road that say that it transitions from 55 miles an hour to 45 miles an hour, and it's notorious for people zooming by and not transitioning in speed, and cops are usually waiting right around the corner, and I have gotten many a ticket between Cathcart and 228 many times. And so I understand that that is the law. I understand that that is what's required by the law, and I understand that that is what is required uh, by the road's regulations. 
But the other night when we were traveling back from Luke and Melody's house over in Lake Stevens, we were coming into Cathcart, and I looked at the speed limit signs when it transitioned from 55 to 45. It was about midnight, and I said, I acknowledge the truth, I acknowledge the rule, I acknowledge the regulation, but I think I'm going to be okay. Some of you are shaking your head. This is a short illustration. I was not okay. The guy behind me with his blue and red lights pulled me over just like that, and I was issued a ticket and I knew better, I, I, was, I was totally convinced of the truth that you don't speed between Cathcart and 228. I know, I have the tickets to prove it. And now I have another ticket. I was convinced of the truth, but that didn't mean that I was going to obey the law. Do you understand what I'm saying? And in regards to this church and the spiritual maturity, which by the way, the spiritual maturity of Wooden Valley Baptist Church is very much different than other churches of our type and of our faith. And I say that to your credit, I say that to our pastor's credit, I would say that the general, the general consensus would be that this church is a spiritually mature church who has been, this morning, explained the biblical perspective of worship. We are fully convinced that the truth according to the word of God is that worship is not what we think it should be, but worship is according to what the Bible says it should be. Would you agree with that? So would I have to convince anybody that we probably know what worship is? I don't think so. But just because we acknowledge what worship is and we can go chapter and verse to what the Bible has to say about worship does not mean that worship is taking place in the lives of our families, in the lives of our personal spiritual walk with God and to my point tonight, in this church. Just because we can acknowledge what worship is does not mean that true biblical worship is taking place. <clears throat> As we look at our text, we come across this uh, character, Jacob. Jacob, Israel, how many of you real quick would say that Jacob is your favorite Bible character? Nobody, okay. Nobody wants Jacob to be their favorite Bible character. When we think of favorite Bible character, usually we think of names like Paul or Timothy or maybe John uh, the disciple, John the revelator, even Old, Testament, uh, uh, even Old Testament characters like Joseph or Moses or Noah. But as far as I know, I've never encountered anybody that says, man, I just love the life of Jacob. Jacob is my favorite, by, except for maybe Jacob. Jake, he might be, okay, that, if, it's, if you're not named after him, it doesn't count. If Jacob is your favorite Bible character, please tell me after the service, I'd love to know. But up to this point, I've never met anybody that would say, my favorite Bible character is Jacob. And why is that? Because the Bible has a lot to say about Jacob. And we're going to talk about that tonight. The Bible has a lot to say about Jacob, but amongst his reputation, I think that we would all agree that we could describe him this way. Inconsistent at best. Inconsistent at best. Up one day making great statements about God, and the next day lying and deceiving. Up one day, man, he's worshiping God, building altars, and the next day tricking his brother into giving up his birthright. Jacob is inconsistent in his walk with God. Perhaps we describe him this way. He's up and down. Up and down. An up and down follower of God. So how on earth did someone like Jacob make it into the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter number 11? How would someone like that who is so incredibly inconsistent make it into Hebrews chapter number 11? And the truth be told, if we're honest with ourselves, before we condemn Jacob for being inconsistent in his walk with God, I think a few of us might need to do some serious self-evaluation. Because I think that we could probably relate a lot more with Jacob than we could, say, Timothy or Paul. Would we agree with that? Inconsistent in his walk with God. Uh, 
in spite of all of Jacob's inconsistencies and shortcomings, we can definitely confirm this distinct characteristic about Jacob. And that is that he was an avid worshiper of God. Everywhere we look in the Old Testament, uh, for the most part, we find Jacob is an avid worshiper of God. You say, how do you know that he was a worshiper of God? Well, you have to understand that uh, the way that they would exemplify worship in the Old Testament, one of the methods that they would use is called altar worship. And so you've heard that reference before many times from this pulpit, but altar worship, they would build altars, they would even sacrifice things or eat on that altar And in doing so, would exemplify their praise and adoration, acknowledgement of who God is because it was a command from uh, from the word of God to build those altars and to worship God by altar worship. And that was what Jacob did. Jacob was a worshiping, worshiping character in the Bible. Everywhere in Jacob's life, in the midst of his inconsistencies, he was still an avid worshiper of God. As a matter of fact, if we look at uh, Genesis chapter number 28, go there with me. Genesis chapter number 28 and verse number 18, we find the beginning of Jacob's practice of altar worship. And this is the altar that we refer to as the altar of beginnings. In Genesis chapter number 28 and verse 18, it says, And Jacob rose up early in the morning and took the stone that he had put up, uh, uh, put for, excuse me, that uh, took the stone that he had put for his pillows and set it up for a pillar and poured oil upon it. Uh, Just after Jacob is found deceiving his brother Esau, we find God revealing himself to Jacob, and there Jacob builds an altar and begins to worship. Right from the beginning, Jacob is building altars and worshiping God. We call that the altar of beginnings. If we continue on in the progression, go to Genesis chapter number 31 and 25. We see the altar of blessing. Verse number 45 says, And Jacob took a stone and set it up for a pillar. And Jacob said unto his brethren, Gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap. And they did eat there upon the heap. And Laban called it Jagersahadutha, but Jacob called it Galed. So God has found blessing Jacob immensely. And what does Jacob do with that blessing? Follows the biblical command of tithing and gives a tenth of his blessing that God had given him back to God. We call that the altar of blessing. Come to Genesis chapter number 32, go there, Genesis chapter 32, where we find Jacob is in some deep trouble. He's in some deep trouble. He needs God to come through big time on his behalf, and so we know the story, Jacob wrestles with God, God reaches down and touches the hollow of his thigh, and for the rest of Jacob's life, he doesn't walk the same, he walks with a limp, and what that did was it reminded Jacob of his need and dependence upon the Lord, and so we call that the altar of breaking, excuse me, the altar of brokenness. Then Genesis chapter number 33. Uh, Genesis chapter 33, after God experiences, uh, Jacob experiences delivering and breaking of God, we find Jacob, uh, excuse me, God confirms the Abrahamic covenant there with Jacob, and he says to Jacob, yes, I am Abraham's God, I am Isaac's God, but Jacob, I am your God. And Jacob takes that revelation, and what does he do? He builds an altar. An altar of belief is what we call this one. An altar of belief. He builds an altar and begins to worship God. The altar of belief. Then we come to Genesis chapter number 35. We call this the altar of breaking, breaking, because God separates uh, Jacob from all others, and he says, Jacob, I'm going to bless you specifically. I want you to separate yourself from your uncle Laban. I want you to separate yourself from Isaac. I am your God, Jacob, and I'm going to do great things for you. And what does Jacob do? You guessed it. Builds an altar, and he begins to worship God. We call that the altar of breaking. And that's where we leave Jacob in chapter number 35. Inconsistent? Sure. Struggling? Absolutely. Up and down? Like a roller coaster. 
But amid all the trials and the tribulations of Jacob's life, he's still worshiping God. He's still an avid worshiper of God. But then we come to this transitional time in the life of Jacob in Genesis chapter number 37. And there's a drastic change in Jacob's life. Uh, God has blessed Jacob immensely. He's got 12 sons. He's got land of plenty and respect amongst his countrymen. And he has the reputation as a man emanating with the power of God. And so we know the story. Jacob, having 12 sons, deemed favor above one, excuse me, of one above all the others. We know we're talking about Joseph. And Jacob went as far as to call Joseph his son of promise. That's my son of promise. And he deemed favor on Joseph above all the rest of his brothers. And that did not sit very well with the 11 other brothers, did it? No, it didn't. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that they despised and they hated Jacob because of the favoritism, excuse me, despised and hated Joseph because of the favoritism that Jacob showed Joseph. And so as, as we know, they're sitting there in Shechem and J- Joseph, excuse me, Jacob sends Joseph to go check on his 11 other brothers. And so he goes out to check on his 11 other brothers and they see him coming from afar off. And so they begin to devise this plan. They're going to they're gonna take Jacob out, Joseph out. We're going to kill Joseph when he comes up. We're going to take his life. And thankfully, Reuben had a little bit of discernment about him, a little bit of poison. He says, hold on, wait, hold on, bro. We're not, we're not going to actually kill him. We can't do that. So why don't we take him and we're going to put him in this pit and we'll take his precious coat of many colors, we'll tear it up, we'll put the blood of an animal on it, and then we'll go show dad, and we'll tell him that he was devoured by a beast. And so that's what they do. They take that coat of many colors away from Jacob, kick him in the pit, and they bring it over to Jacob. And they show him the coat of Joseph covered in the blood of another animal. And the Bible tells us that uh, Jacob gets the news that Joseph, his son of promise, is dead and gone. So what does Jacob do? What does Jacob do with the news? What he's always done, right? He builds an altar and he begins to worship God. Because Jacob is an avid worshiper, that means that Jacob is going to worship in the mountaintops and that means that Jacob's going to worship in the valleys. Jacob's going to worship on the rainy days and Jacob's going to worship on the sunny days. Jacob's an avid worshiper of God. So this is not going to deter Jacob from his intention in life and that is to bring honor and glory and worship the Lord. So he builds an altar, right? No. All throughout Jacob's life, amid his inconsistencies, every bump and trial, he's found building altars, but not anymore. Not this time. One major catastrophe, and it completely changed Jacob's life. Uh, The worst possible thing that happens in the life of a parent, a child dies, supposedly, a child dies. And from Genesis chapter number 37 to Genesis chapter number 45, through the span of 13 long years, you don't hear a peep of worship out of Jacob. No more worship, no more altars. Just silence and bitterness from the one who once worshipped God through every bump and trial. And again, for 13 long years, Jacob kicks off his shoes, sits back, and becomes perfectly comfortable in his place of bitterness and despair. No more to worship God. So things couldn't get any worse, right? He's experienced the maximum amount of trial and tribulation. Surely no more trial is going to come. But what does God do with that situation? God sends a famine to the land. Yeah. Sends a famine to the land of Canaan. And uh, takes that famine. And and that's big news for Jacob. He's wallowing in his pity. And just to make matters worse, God lets the bottom fall out on Jacob and provides another trial. 
And I'm not going to get ahead of myself in a moment. We're going to talk about this. But that is exactly how we can find ourselves in our Christian walk today. We can become so wallowing in our self-pity. And we begin to negotiate our worship, praise, and adoration to God based on our circumstances. And what does he do? Allow another trial to come. In the midst of our bitterness because of difficult circumstances, we fold our arms and begin to negotiate our worship to God. God, if you want my praise, fix my problems. You want me to acknowledge you? Fix my circumstances. And we can begin to negotiate our praise and adoration of God based off our circumstances. And just when we think that things can't get any worse, instead of God conforming to our conditions and regulations, he allows another trial to come. Why? To show us that we can't do this without him. We can, come, we can become perfectly comfortable in our state of bitterness. And like Jacob, some of us remain there for years. So here we find Jacob, who's lost his son of promise, lost the fellowship of his 11 other sons, and facing a famine in the land. Man, when it rains in the life of Jacob, it pours. But all along, God's hand of provision was moving in the life of Jacob, in spite of his seemingly hopeless situation. The widespread famine in the land left people so incredibly desperate for food that some historians say that they actually, some of the masters, uh, they, they resolved to eating their servants to avoid starvation. So this, this famine was a big deal. And so Jacob had two options. He could either die or he could send his sons to Egypt in hopes that they could uh, retrieve some grain and bring it back. See, a word on the street was that Egypt, because of the dominance of Egypt, they had all the grain, they had all the food, and obviously they had Joseph, so they had the provision to know that they ought to put some, uh, put some aside. And so Joseph, or Jacob said, if we can just get to Egypt, if you guys can just get to Egypt, perhaps Pharaoh will give you enough grain to bring back to Canaan, so at least we won't, we'll, we won't starve for another season. So speaking of Egypt, there's another member of the house of Jacob that's experiencing, excuse me, Experiencing similar difficulties and, and difficult trials and circumstances. While all this turmoil is going on in the life of Jacob, Joseph is experiencing a series of valleys himself, isn't he? He is sold into slavery, made into a servant, accused of attempted rape, thrown into prison and forgotten in prison. And in the midst of his own hurricane of tribulations, we don't find Jacob bitter and dissatisfied but rather we find him worshiping and exalting the God of his fathers. We find him worshiping his God. And again, we find Jacob having the opportunity to give glory, honor, and worship to God in his situation, but rather wallowing in his pity and bitter. And again, I, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but no matter the situation, no matter the difficulty, we can and should always worship God. We always have a reason to worship but that's not how Jacob felt. So this famine comes along and, and Jacob sends his sons down to Egypt where they encounter a very familiar face. We won't go into the story. Most of us uh, know it, but there we find Joseph. No longer in the place of the pit. No longer a prospect in prison, but now is a man of position in the palace. Quite the change of events. Jacob, or excuse me, Joseph is the second in command in all of Egypt. He's the second in command really in all the world. We'll go over that in just a minute. Uh, and as he looks out one day uh, in the palace, he sees some familiar faces again coming from afar off. And the very brothers that threw him into a pit and sold him into slavery are now kneeling before Joseph. Which, by the way, that's exactly what Joseph said would take place. 
That's exactly what his brothers mocked him for. And now exactly as he portrayed, there are his brothers kneeling before the feet of the second in command in Egypt. Joseph plays this little game with his brothers and uh, he doesn't reveal himself until the third visit. And when he finally does reveal himself, he says, hey bro, don't worry about it. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Why would Joseph have that kind of response? Because someone who is going to worship God can't hold on to bitterness. And here's the trial of a father and a son. One is blinded by his own bitterness and the other overwhelmed with the goodness of God even in a seemingly impossible situation. Joseph took every blow with grace and was faithful to worship God the Father while Jacob took himself out of the game and remained on the sideline. Until we come to Genesis chapter number 45. Again, Joseph plays this game with his brothers and finally reveals himself and uh, gives the instructions for them to go to their father and uh, to tell them that the son whom he thought was dead was actually alive. And so they return to Jacob and try to inform him that his son of promise is alive and well, but Jacob needs some convincing. So they bring him over to see the wagons that Joseph had sent with his brothers and Jacob breaks and there he believes. And that next morning, Jacob the same man who turned his back on God and refused to worship is about to experience the grace of God in his life again. The man who had forgotten how to worship was about to start building altars again. So why the sudden change in the life of Jacob? Why the sudden change in the life of Jacob? What would cause Jacob to start building altars once again? What would cause a contentious whiner to become a coherent worshiper? Uh, some might say, why do we need to know what occurred in the life of Jacob that caused him to begin to worship God again? What does it matter? Well, like we kind of said before, we could probably identify a lot more with Jacob than a lot of us are willing to admit. We find ourselves shaken by the circumstances around us that it causes us, those who once glorified God with our worship, to refrain from exalting his name. It happened right here in the life of Jacob, and it can happen in the life of the believer. As a matter of fact, I believe that it has happened in the life of some believers here where you have been in your place of bitterness and despair, and you've been there for years. So what changed in the life of Jacob that caused him to start worshiping again? In light of our text tonight, I'd like to show us five truths that revived the worship of Jacob and five truths that can revive the worship of the believer today Five truths that can revive the worship of Wooden Valley Baptist Church and very possibly push us into real revival. In light of our text, we've got five truths that revive the worship of, jo of Jacob. Number one, he lives. He lives. Look at verse number 25. And they went up out of Egypt and came into the land of Canaan unto Jacob their father and told him, saying, Joseph is yet alive, and he is governor over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart fainted, for he believed them not. And they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said unto them. And when he saw the wagons which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob, their father, revived. See, ever since the word came of the supposed decease of Joseph, Jacob spent his days wallowing in his pity, and it took his song. But oh, the joy that flooded the soul of Joseph, excuse me, Jacob, when those precious words came to him. He lives. 
Joseph is alive. Father, weep no more. Your son of promise is alive. He is here and he lives. Joseph is alive. Throughout the Old Testament, we have what we refer to as types of Christ. How many of you have heard that reference before? Types of Christ. Simply put, a type of Christ is an Old Testament example of uh, either the person or the the life, the the, the death, the, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. And that can be exemplified in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. That's what we call to, that's what we call types of Christ. And I'd have you believe that there was not a greater example of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament than can be found in the life of Joseph. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, 2,000 years ago, they tried to take out my Jesus, just like they tried to take out Joseph. They beat him so bad you couldn't even tell he was human. They spit in his face, put a crown of thorns on his head. One of the aspects of the resur- excuse me, one of the aspects of the crucifixion that we really don't talk about that often is the fact that these giant, bulky Roman soldiers put blindfolds on the Son of God and begin to punch and begin to beat him and mock him and say, "Hey, Jesus, prophesy who's going to hit you next." When they would crucify someone, what they would not do is they would not put the cross and then nail them to the cross. No, they'd put the cross on the ground. They'd nail him to the cross on the ground and then they'd pick him up, put him into the hole and in doing so because of the jolt, because of the shock, it would cause so much pain to rush through that person that was being crucified. Just the same case, I believe, with Jesus Christ. They laid him down on the ground, the King, the Son of God, our Savior, they laid him on the ground, nailed him to a cross and then threw him uh, into the the holster of the cross and, and in doing so caused so much pain to shoot through the body of the Son of God. And it didn't stop there. They mocked him. They said, Hail, King of the Jews. Dislocated his knees so he couldn't breathe. And just to make sure that they finished the job, they took a spear and shoved it into the Son of God. The Bible says that water poured out, then blood poured out, pulling off possibly the most gruesome execution in human history. That's what they did with Jesus. And the same soldiers that beat him, the same soldiers that nailed him, and I draw attention to that because I want you to understand that those are probably the same soldiers that took Jesus and put him in the tomb. And I would imagine that as they brought him down to the, uh, from the cross because of the kind of despise and despair that they put on the life of Jesus, because of the way that they mocked him, they probably didn't carry his body with care. Would you agree with that? As they brought down the Son of God, I'd imagine that they drug him through the dirt and put him in the tomb And they sealed the door shut to ensure that no tomfoolery would take a place on behalf of the disciples. That's what they did to Jesus. But aren't you so glad that Sunday rolled around? Sunday rolled around and Jesus busted up out of the grave and conquered death, sin, and the grave and ascended into heaven. And there he remains today alive. Alive. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 puts it this way. Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead... How say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not raised? And if Christ be not risen, then our preaching is vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, we were found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up. If so be that he, uh, if the dead rise not, for if, excuse me, for if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised? And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins." Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Verse 20. But now is Christ risen. 
from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, and by man, excuse me, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. How can we see revival in the worship in seemingly possible situations? By holding to the truth that we serve a risen Savior. You say, you don't understand. The family difficulties that I'm going through are not looking very, uh, not looking very good. They're looking, hey, he's alive. You say, you don't understand the kind of financial difficulty that, hey, he's alive. No matter the situation, no matter the trial, no matter the turmoil, our Jesus is alive. And we serve a risen Savior. Martin Luther, we've referred to him as the great reformer. And Martin Luther was notorious for the great statements that he made about God and, made, and wrote several great hymns. And a lot of people don't know this, but Martin Luther actually suffered from serious depression. And Martin Luther uh, was going through a particular episode one day, and he was out in his study alone, and his wife came into him, and she was dressed from head to toe in black. And obviously he thought that uh, maybe someone died, so he looked at her and he said, what funeral are we going to? Who died? And with tears in her eyes, she looked at him and she said, God died. And obviously Martin Luther became very angry. He rose from his feet, went over to her face and says, how dare you mock my risen Savior? My God's not dead. He's alive. And then she looked him in the face and she said, then how come you don't live like he's alive? And those, ter- those words took weight. And Martin Luther went on to write the great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, a bulwark never failing. What revived the worship of Jacob? Joseph lives. And what can revive the worship of the believer today? Jesus lives. But not only that, number two, he loves Look at verse number uh, 10 of chapter number 45. And thou shalt dwell in the land of Goshen, and thou shalt be near unto me, thou and thy children and thy children's children and thy flocks and thy herds and all that thou hast, and there will I nourish thee, for yet there are five years of famine, lest thou and thy household and all that thou hast come to poverty. And behold, your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin, Brother Benjamin, that is my mouth that speaketh unto you, and ye shall tell me my father, <clears throat> tell my father of all my glory in Egypt, and of all that ye have, uh, excuse me, and all of ye have seen, and ye shall haste and bring down my father hither. And he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck. Moreover, he kissed all his brethren and wept upon them. And after that, his brethren talked with him. That doesn't seem like the response that you would expect from someone who had been so despised and rejected like Joseph was. The very ones who threw him into the pit and sold him into slavery were kneeling there at the feet of the all-powerful Joseph and rather than giving them exactly what they deserve, what does Joseph do? He administers grace because Joseph loves. What a wonderful picture of the love of Christ. 2 Peter chapter number 2 and verse number 21 says, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. Verse 22, Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now uh, returned unto the shepherd and the bishops of your soul. 
Friend, I'm here to tell you that the very one that we were so quick to neglect and cast aside, like Joseph, Jesus stands with open arms and wants to administer grace. Why? Because he loves. Our Jesus loves. What revived the worship of Jacob? Joseph lives and Joseph loves. And what can revive the worship of the believer today? My Jesus loves. Not only that, number three, He's Lord. He's Lord. Look at verse number nine. Haste ye and go up unto my father and say unto him, Thus saith thy son Joseph, God hath made me Lord over all Egypt. Come down unto me, tarry not. Verse 13. And ye shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt and of all all that ye have seen, and ye shall haste and bring uh, bring down my father. You say, what does that have to do with the revived worship of Jacob? Listen very carefully. It was pivotal for Jacob to see Joseph for who he was. Why? Because if Jacob could catch a glimpse of who Joseph was, he'd understand that the idea that the Lord of Egypt wanting to have the fellowship with the lowly Jacob meant one thing. That Joseph was fully capable to take care of the needs of, uh, excuse me, that Joseph was able to take care of the needs of Jacob simply because of who he was. Don't miss that. We'll go over the financial aspect of it in just a moment. But the simple fact that Joseph held the title as Lord of Egypt meant that the, uh, he had been given power and dominion over all the kingdom, surrounding kingdoms. And because, again, the dominance of Egypt at that time, he was second in command really in all the world. Joseph's the boss. Again, what does it have to do with the worship of, revived worship of Jacob? If Joseph is who he says he is, if Joseph is Lord then that meant that Joseph had the power and credibility to take care of Jacob even in this difficult circumstance. Jacob could have the confidence in in the comforting truth that the one who lives and the one who loves is capable of caring for Jacob even in this time of need. Why? Because he's Lord. I don't try to pretend that I understand what trials some of you are going through, nor do I try to pretend the kind of pain that you're experiencing, but I do know this. Not only does our Savior live, not only is, does he love, but he is Lord. He is Lord. And because of who he is, Hebrews chapter number 4, verse number 16 says that we can come boldly to the throne of grace to obtain mercy and find grace to help what? In our time of need. So what revived the worship of Jacob? Joseph lives. He loves. And he's Lord. And what can revive the worship of the believer today? Jesus is Lord. Number four, I like this one. He's loaded. Yeah, he's loaded. Look at verse number 26. Joseph is yet alive and is governor over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart fainted, for he believed them not. And they told him all the words of Joseph, which, is, uh, which he had said unto them. And when he saw the wagons which jo- uh, Joseph had sent the, uh, to carry him, the spirit of Jacob their father revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is yet alive. I will go and see him before I die. The brothers come to their father with the news of Joseph's living con- uh, condition. And again, Joseph, excuse me, Jacob is not convinced. He needs some convincing. And so the brothers bring him over to see the wagons that were full of the things that Joseph brought. Those wagons represented the provision of the Lord of Egypt. Those wagons represented the provision of Joseph. And it's at that point in the life of Jacob that he believes. My son's alive and he's loaded. You say, okay, Lamar, we get it. He lives, he loves, he's Lord, you need another L, so he's loaded. 
But Philippians chapter number uh, 4 and verse number 19 says, But my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Our God is fully capable of supplying our every need because he has the resources. And we can become so worried and we, we, we begin to become so enamored with our petty problems and the little concerns that we have. I love the messages that Brother Chip's been speaking on the great faith of those who walked in Israel and how sometimes they were making big deals out of nothing. Do you not have more faith in that to know that we serve a God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the rocks in every mine? As Christians, we can rest assured that the very one who loves, excuse me, the very one who lives, the one who loves, the one who's Lord is perfectly capable of coming through on his promise to supply our every need. Why? Because he has the resources. He's loaded. Again, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the rocks in every mine. Just a couple of weeks ago, um, Brother Chip and uh, Brother McTurnan are working together, and he's going to be transitioning uh, over to uh, doing things like payroll and paying the bills and so forth, and so he's been training Brother McTurnan how to do that. And so the other day, this was probably about three weeks ago, Brother McTurnan was in the office, and Brother Chip was showing him how to, uh, how to uh, work, not work Excel, but show him um, how to work our system uh, in which we do payroll with, and so he needed somebody to be able to write a check for and so my wife and I, because of some things that had come up, we had expediated some of, our, uh, some of our finances, and it was getting really tight. I'm just being honest. It was getting really tight where we were running out of money before we ran out of the month. Who's been there before? Yeah. So we were running out of money before we were running out of the month. Uh, out of the month. And so Brother Chip comes in, and he hands me a check, and he says, hey, I wrote your check early. I had to show Brother McTurnan how to write it. Is that okay? That might sound like such a small thing to you, but isn't it amazing that we can become so worried and stressed about something that God has taken, taken care of and has the resources to be able to supply our every need? Because he has the resources. Why? He's loaded. He's loaded. What, what revived the worship of Jacob? Joseph was loaded. And what can revive the worship of the believer today? Our Jesus, he lives, he loves, he's Lord, and he is loaded. Lastly, number five, he's longing. Look at verse number nine again. We read it a moment ago. Haste ye and go up to my father and say unto him, Thus saith thy son Joseph, God hath made me Lord over all Egypt. Come down unto me, tarry not, verse 13, and ye shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt and of all that ye have seen, and ye shall haste and bring down my father hither. Burning deep within the heart of the Lord of Egypt was the desire to be with the one whom he loved. Was the longing to be with the one that he loved. Burning deep within the heart of Joseph was the longing to be with his father, Jacob. We use that word love a lot. I love pizza. I love fishing. I love fill in the blank. And we use that word love a lot. It's every day in our vocabulary. Um, and I, I use it often too. I would say I love this church. I really do. I love the people of this church, this church body. Even more specifically, I love Brother Lance. Brother Lance, yeah, there we go. I love him. He's my brother in Christ. I love Brother John. And I love Brother Jacob. I even love Brother Chip. I mean, that's crazy. And as much as I love all of you, <clears throat> When we go home tonight and I go to bed tonight, I'm not going to pillow my head and be thinking about how much I miss Brother Chip. Oh, I miss Brother Chip. That bald head, the shine, the glisten. Do you wax it? No. 
I'm not going to be excited about Tuesday when I get to see Brother Chip again. That's just, I'm sorry, I don't swing that way. I'm, I'm, I really probably am going to forget about you, Brother Chip, when I go to bed tonight. I'm not really concerned about most of you. I'm sorry, I love everybody in this room, but nobody in this room I would say that I long for, except for one person that I long for. And that's obviously my wife, right? I long for my wife. We've been married for five years. A couple of uh, months ago, we celebrated five years. I'm trying again because no one clapped. We celebrated five years a couple of months ago. Good, good. Five years. And do you know where I was on our anniversary? I was in Goldendale, Washington in 105 degree temperatures in a triple decker, not double decker, a triple decker bunk bed on the bottom bunk smelling smelly, nasty, sweaty teenage boys getting sunburned and I can remember very vividly on the 13th thinking of how much I wish I could be with my wife, how much I longed to be with my wife because of how much that I love her. You understand the difference? It's, it's more than just a love. It's a longing to be in fellowship with my wife because of our relationship that we have with one another would cause me who loves her to want to be with her. And just as I long to be with my wife, Jesus Christ loved us enough to send his son to die on the cross to save us from our sins. Rather, God loved us enough to send his son to die on the cross to save us from our sins, displaying his love. But on this side of the cross, I'd have you believe that there is a longing on behalf of God the Father to have fellowship with his children and then worship him in spirit and in truth that exceeds his love, it is his longing and his desire for us to have fellowship with him and to worship him in spirit and in truth, in true biblical worship. God's two greatest desires are for the lost to come to know him and his children to get to know him. God's two greatest desires are for the lost to come to know him Accepting Jesus Christ as their Savior is the number one objective for Jesus Christ on behalf of the Christian. That's why we have a command to go out and to tell the gospel to every creature. But not only that, for his children to get to know him. God is not satisfied with you just having an eternity in heaven. He desires to have a relationship with you and for you to have fellowship with him. Philippians chapter number 3 and verse number 7 says, But what things were gained to me, those I counted for loss, uh, loss for Christ... Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Verse 10, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his suffering, being made conformable unto his death. Look at verse 13. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. I press, for the mark, for, I press uh, toward the mark for the prize of the high, high calling of God in Christ Jesus. What, what Paul is saying there in, in, uh, in, in verse number 13, brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. He said, I haven't arrived yet. I still have those areas that I'm not proud of. I still have those oppressive situations. But this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind 
and reaching for those things which are before. Then he says, I press toward the mark of the prize, the higher calling of God in Christ Jesus. Like Joseph, Jesus has a longing and desire for us to be in fellowship with him and worship him in spirit and in truth like we heard this morning. If our worship was dependent upon where we are and upon perfect situations and circumstances, we would never have reason to worship. But worship is not dependent upon where we are, but according to who he is and what he's done. We can worship because he lives. We can worship because he loves. We can worship because he's Lord. We can worship because he's loaded. And we can worship our Savior, Jesus Christ, because the same Jesus who lives, who loves, who's Lord, and who's, uh, who's loaded is longing for us to have fellowship with him in true biblical worship. A.W. Tozier, again, I'll quote him. It says, true worship, worship that is pleasing to God, radiates throughout a person's entire life. True worship, that's an important statement. True worship, and then he goes on to say, worship that is pleasing to God, radiates throughout a person's entire life. Chip said it this morning. Basically, what it's saying is true biblical worship commands a constant outpouring of our acknowledgement of who he is, his power, his authority, his omniscience, his omnipotence, his omnipresence, his holiness, his divinity, and doing so daily, not just on Sundays. Did you get that? True worship, worship that is pleasing to God, radiates throughout a person's entire life, not just on Sundays. But today is Sunday. And as you can tell, we've done things very differently than what we normally do, and we did so intentionally to allow us to apply this amazing truth even as a church and spend some time in true biblical worship to our God, for He is worthy. So although that worship is not exclusively tied down to music, I would have you believe that music moves the heart of God like no other area of worship can. We read in 2 Chronicles chapter number 5 and verse number 11, it says, And it came to pass, when the priests were come out of the holy place, for all the priests that were present were sanctified and did then wait by course. Also the Levites, which were the singers of them, of Asaph and of Heman and of uh, Jeduthun, with their sons and their brethren being arrayed in white linen, having cymbals and uh, psalteries and harps, stood at the east end of the altar, and with them 120 priests sounding with trumpets. Verse 13, it came even to pass as the trumpeters and singers were as one to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praising uh, and praise the Lord saying, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. That then the house was filled with a cloud, even the house of the Lord, verse 14, so that the priest could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of God. What a possibility. Music moves the heart of God like no other area of, of worship can. As a matter of fact, that's why music was created. So at this time, I'm going to have the choir come. Choir would, if the choir would come make their way to the platform at this time, We're going to do something a little different tonight. We're going to spend some time tonight worshiping the Lord in song. And after that, we're going to do something that we've not done in a while. As far as I know, we've not done it as long as I've been a member of Wooden Valley Baptist Church. 
We're going to take opportunity tonight to get on our face before the Lord and to worship him. In light of the message that we heard this morning, don't you think that he's worthy and that he deserves our worship? And I'm not talking about a prayer service where we begin to raise our hand and speak about prayer requests and things that we want answered. We're not even going to request anything from God tonight. All we're going to do is acknowledge him for who he is and what he's done. And you can follow this leading of the Holy Spirit. You can do exactly what the Lord wants you to do. But I'm just going to let you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to get on my face before the Lord because worship will do that to you. When you acknowledge who Jesus is, when you acknowledge who God is and what he's done, it doesn't bring you up. It brings you down. It brings you low. And so I'm going to spend time tonight, just a few moments, worshiping God on my face before the Lord. We'll sing a couple of songs. I'd like uh, Miss Sarah to play, and as she plays, um, we're going to be uh, taking advantage tonight of, of taking the opportunity to now worship the Lord like we, were usually, like we usually do at the beginning of a service. And so again, you can follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, and as the Spirit leads... We're going to take, we're not going to have a closing prayer, closing announcements. You just, as long as the Spirit leads, you're going to be given the opportunity to worship Him tonight. Before we worship, I'm going to ask Brother Mayfield to come, and he's going to read Psalms chapter 145 in its entirety, and I want you to listen to the words that he's reading, and if you don't know how to worship, you don't know what to say, just read Psalms 145. It's a great psalm that acknowledges the person, the attributes, and the personality of God in an, in an amazing, articulate way. And he's going to read, and then we're going to sing a few songs, and then take opportunity to worship God tonight. So Brother Mayfield, you come and read, and then we'll sing some hymns tonight. I will extol thee, my God, O King, and I will bless thy name forever and ever. Every day will I bless thee, and I will praise thy name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise thy works to another and shall declare thy mighty acts. I will speak of the glorious honor of thy majesty and of thy wondrous works. And men shall speak of the might of thy terrible acts and I will declare thy greatness. They shall abundantly utter the memory of thy great goodness and shall sing of thy righteousness. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and of great mercy. The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. All thy works shall praise thee, O Lord, and thy saints shall bless thee. They shall speak of the glory of thy kingdom and talk of thy power, to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and thy dominion endureth throughout all generations. The Lord upholdeth all that fall, and raiseth up all those that be bowed down. The eyes of all wait upon thee, and thou givest them their meat in due season. Thou openest thine hand, and satisfieth the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, and holy in all his works. The Lord is nigh unto all them that call upon him, to all that call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of them that fear him. He also will hear their cry and will save them. The Lord preserveth all them that love him, but all the wicked will he destroy. My mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name. 
forever and ever.